Welcome to the Adventures with Grammy podcast. I am your host, Carolyn Berry. This podcast is for grandparents on the go with their grandchildren and for parents who want to ensure loving relationships across the generations. I welcome your input and your feedback on every episode of the podcast we produce. Please send me an email at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com or connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at Grammy Adventure. Please follow or subscribe to my podcast. It's free so you won't miss an episode and ask your family and friends to do the same. You can subscribe to the monthly newsletter by visiting my website, adventureswithgrammy.com, and clicking the newsletter sign-up link. This week's episode focuses on dyslexia, a lifelong condition that makes reading fluently nearly impossible. Dyslexia is a subject about which I have strong feelings and beliefs. I have worked with countless students who have dyslexia. My mom has it, and so does my niece. Reading is so important in everyday life. It is the process of looking at symbols and getting meaning from those symbols. It is connecting letters with sounds, stringing and blending those sounds into words, sentences, and paragraphs, and then decoding and comprehending the written word. To comprehend what one has read, one must read fluently. About one in five people struggle with fluency and comprehension. That struggle is known as a specific learning disability in reading, commonly referred to as dyslexia. Both of today's guests have firsthand experience with dyslexia. Trisha Cook embraces her gift of dyslexia. She has learned strategies to help her brain compensate for its learning differences. Our second guest, Tracy Peterson, is a veteran teacher who, along with her former student, Sloane LaFrance, wrote Cartwheels, Finding Your Special Kind of Smart, a lively look at a real student who would rather do cartwheels than read because reading is such a struggle. Trisha Cook knows the feeling of failure and shame that often envelop a student when she realizes her reading growth is not keeping pace with her classmates. Trisha managed to get into college before she began to understand the circuitry in her brain differs from that of about 80% of the population. She became a reading specialist and trained in the Montessori method of teaching, as well as in the pioneering multisensory approach to teaching reading known as Orton-Gillingham. In addition, she offers independent tutoring, coaching, and consultation. Welcome, Tricia. Let's get started by telling us a bit of your journey as a person who had difficulty with reading. I was at a really good school in New Orleans, Louisiana, and they could not help me. The teachers were very frustrated, pretty much angry with me. They didn't know what to do with me to help me. I got held back, and then I went to an that year at that school, second grade, they're like, well, I got to find out why well, she's still not reading. Now, they never said dyslexia at that time, but they said uh, central auditory processing disorder with a learning disability. That's somebody who has higher or average IQ, but struggles in reading and math. So it was second grade that we found out. So I was very lucky in that fact but still not much help was given at that time. Not like they have today. How did they help you? My mom sought out a tutor for me to start to read in second grade, but it wasn't a dyslexia tutor, none of this multi-sensory type thing. So I did not get it officially any help in school until I was in high school when I was retested and got an IEP. Before then, I was just in really good private schools and my parents were trusting that they were helping me. There was not much help, again. Not receiving help in the academics, how did that impact you emotionally? I was, I've decided at an early age I was going to be an educator, so I went through all the certifications and trainings, and at 38, I went for my master's as a reading specialist. Believe it or not, somebody with a learning difference, struggle in reading and math, being a reading specialist, high ironic. I was in that program and we were, they were not talking about dyslexia, but they were talking about struggling readers. And so they were teaching us how to, how people learn. 
basically. And so they introduced us to mapping, mind mapping, but they called it, you know, graphic organizers. I believe these graphic organizers that they were introducing to me was actually rewiring my brain because I was able to put my thinking into a visual way that includes color, shape, size, dimension. So that's the first time I really got enveloped into these these graphic organizers. So I think it pretty much retrained my brain. So I had everything I wanted. I got, I could read well, I could comprehend now. Then I even weed myself off of having to physically write out the graphic organizers, the mind maps that I use now in my head because, you know, my strong visual spatial reasoning, correct? 40, I was like, something is still going on. I'm able to learn like I've always wanted, but why am I still insecure and unsure? I started to look heavily into the Bible first. And I found strength. The word strength was kind of popping out for me, which can be interpreted as as mercy. So I was like, what is this strength about? I started researching, researching, researching all this stuff. And I found out basically I had anger. I never identified to the anger that I had developed as these. I was dealing with these teachers getting so angry and frustrated and upset with me. I never recognized any of that anger inside of myself. I was not considered myself an angry person, actually a rather peaceful person. Wow, I have anger. So I had a recap in my mind and deal with these. I I could see the teacher's frustration and anger, and I dealt with looking at that. And yes, I discovered that for anger that I had developed and didn't recognize, I needed strength to look at that anger. Because only strength can get somebody to look to say, for me, it was God, take this this anger and give me mercy, give me strength. That's the only thing that could help with that. And next, after I had looked at the anger, now it was time to me to look at the shame. Now, let me talk about that a little bit in length. I could identify the shame, but not the word shame. But I had felt very ashamed as a child because of my learning difference. Letting people down that I looked up to, the teachers, my parents, myself. So I developed a lot of shame and that turns out to be empathy that I needed, also known as grace. So I never really cared much for myself as much as I cared for others. I had a very negative internal dialogue that would go on. You're not good enough. I can't do this. I can't do as well as everybody. I looked at that further and that's why why I was so unsure and insecure. Luckily, I'm a Christian. I had Jesus. He took those things from me and I worked on other other things that were needed. But it all begins with looking and really thinking about your child, your grandchild might actually have been developing this anger and shame. How can we help this? If you can help that, then it will actually help them not just be sure, you know, become broke confident, but it helped them with not showing their traits of their learning difference as much. Because if they're stressed, hungry, tired, or sick, more of the characteristics come out. But if you're calm through all of it, then it will help. So I give also alternative like yoga and prayer and affirmations, those types of things to, to look, help them learn to be calm. And I provide a checklist of anger and shame to look at with your child or without your child (laughs) or grandchild. That was a long story. (laughs) Try to make it short for you. It was a long story, but it was a very accurate account of how you felt and certainly agrees with what I saw as a teacher in high school of children who had learning differences, who even though they may not have verbalized the shame, you could tell they felt shame. And it's so important to really accent and affirm the children's strengths and not just focus on their deficits. And one of the things that you said earlier about the graphic organizer, that was something that I have found with students who have dyslexia. They often think visually, they think in pictures. So it makes sense that a graphic organizer helps them. Yeah, our deficit is in analyzing, breaking down information and putting it back together. Our strength is actually the whole, looking at the whole in a visual way 
there where if we're given the correct tools like a graphic organizer so we can analyze and break it down properly and bring it back to that whole which we already knew. So that brings me back to the fact that not only do I have an anger shame checklist that I provide for free for people and I also have a gifts and strengths checks checklist. And you know, no, you don't know how many people have not seen anything like this, even though we know we know the gardeners multiple intelligences that can be applied in the classroom. There's plenty of families that haven't seen a lot of these gifts, which I'm like, whoa. Okay. And one of them being visual spatial being top, naturalist being top. It shows all all of our gifts and strengths. So, like you said, we can play on those strengths. And that's what's going to help us uh, with our weakness. But we got to honor our weakness. We got to honor it and work with it through the strength, but not get down or shamed of these weaknesses and know that we can overcome them. In a former life, before I retired, I was a high school teacher. My other role at the high school was as department chair, which meant I led all of the IEP meetings. And one of the things that I insisted on at an IEP meeting was listing a child's strengths before we ever mentioned a child's deficits. I wanted to show that child all of the good things and and make sure the parents realized all of the good things before we talked about how to remediate the deficits. And I often used Gardner's multiple intelligences. I would give this modified test to the child and help them understand what their strengths are and what their gifts were. And you often found that the children knew that intuitively, but Mm. nobody had really talked about why that was a strength and that the only thing that a school measures is the reading and math ability. We don't really examine all of the other multiple intelligences that Gardner talks about. Can you tell our listeners a little more about that? Yeah, I can definitely tell more of the gifts. I really wish I could get that word. We care that we care. We care. We're more sensitive group uh, of individuals. We care more for people, animals, and nature than most which is very interesting because people and people especially could get more down on us. You know, like I mentioned, the anger and shame that teachers had where it can affect them, affect them environmentally, but in their natural state, they actually goes against their natural state of being really sensitive and caring and compassionate group. So to me, I can mention all of the other gifts we have, like, which I will mention some more, but the biggest one to me is that aspect of caring and being hypersensitive to other people. And I'll take that over academics any day. You can always look up facts, but that caring and sensitivity is innate and you can't really teach that to somebody. Exactly. We have the outside of the box thinking along with this care and that outside of box thinking is coming up with having a problem, but solutions that most people don't even come up with. So I know that if they can just have a positive mindset and modeled by adults, like you said, in the meetings, meetings, how you had had emphasized their strengths, if they're growing up in this positive mindset with emphasis on these gifts, is, is it gifts of dyslexia? But it is the positive mindset of that they can really make a huge change in this world, you know, of any problem. Just the outside the box thinking is another huge one that I really appreciate and that divergent thinking. Well, people assume that Albert Einstein had dyslexia, even though it wasn't officially diagnosed. He, in his early years, he went to a school that was more language based and did poorly. And teachers yeah. often talked in disparaging ways about him. And then later, his parents moved to an area where the high school or the school system was more science and math based. And that's where he flourished. So it's a matter of looking. Well, for him, it was the environment made a huge difference for him. So we have the deficits on on the left with the language and logical mathematical reading reasoning, but we can compensate on the right. There's about 5% of the kids in the data that I look at that they 
uh, compensate on the same side on the left being logical mathematical. Einstein was one of the very lucky few that did his compensation on the same side of the brain is basically what I'm saying. And that's only about 5% of my kids that do poorly in language, but do very well in math. But he, they don't just do very well in math. They do extremely well in math. And they also, what they have what I call the engineering mind, which I love. So they're very much on with logical mathematical reasoning, wanting to break things down, break things down, break. But then they have this divergent mind that they're also still compensating on the right with this creative, imaginative thinking that in outside of the box solutions. So to me, I am not one of those 5%. I wish I was. Math is an extreme struggle for me. I am very happy for those like Einstein that, that develop on the same, that overcompensate on the same side. That's the early development in that area of the brain. Two other examples of that are Henry Ford and Thomas Edison, who we know helped us with the car and electricity and all kinds of inventions. That's right. They thought, you see, Einstein and his theory of relativity, he was working in an office and he was looking out the window and he imagined some man that was working on the roof falling off. And I know that sounds morbid, but he was imagining it. And this helped him come up with a theory of relativity. It's the imagery that he was using. So what I want to say about the divergent mind, this is very important that people know this. We have a hard time staying in the present. This is where our calm comes is being in the present moment. It's our hippocampus that's causing this problem. So we're constantly in the future. What can I create? What can I innovate? What can I entrepreneur? Or in the past, unfortunately, the past is usually negative. It can sometimes be positive, but it's most likely replaying a situation that happened where somebody was angry. How did their face look? How did the tone of their voice sound? How did I react? Stuff like this. So there, there we go with my Elbert again that I, I give things that help them to make calm so we're not in the past or the future. So it is a gift. I actually do a class of teaching, again, present, staying present. I call it remembering calm and listening skills. It's only in that time of calm that we can listen to a higher source. We can listen to our knowing. We can, staying in the presence, not in the future, in the past is a very hard thing to conquer as a just, you know, a divergent thinker. But it's so very important to set times a day where you can do that but not when you're working, not when you have to take care of responsibilities. So I know this is a divergent thought that I'm saying, but it's very true because <laughs> I've lived it. I also wanted to mention a couple of other people who are famous and have dyslexia. Richard Branson with the airlines. We have actors, Tom Cruise and Cher, the singer. So did Walt Disney and Alexander Graham Bell. And Henry Winkler, the Fonz, and he has gone on to write books that are a big hit with children who have dyslexia. I thought of the skill, interpersonal skills, interpersonal skills uh, we create. Yes. We really care for people, animals, and nature. So all of the actors, all of the people that uh, are writing these books, they have such need to give help to those. That's this is actually creating that compassion that we need. So they're beyond the point of empathy. So I'm really, really proud that they can speak out to the world and all that and then helping others. That's the main thing with dyslexia or any struggle. You know, everybody's going to have their struggles is giving that compassion back to the world and not living in that shame and anger anymore and be thankful for what's happened, this struggle. And that's what I, I finally got to a point. I was no longer angry or shame about it, that I'm living at peace with it and that it all had to happen. You know, the teachers being ugly, my, you know, our brother, people that were ugly to me for it, my difference. So I think the main thing here is with, I really want the grandparents to know that there can be anger and shame being developed. And if you're Christian, grace and mercy, if not, there's other way, holistic ways of getting strength and empathy. Often they had not received the necessary help as a child in elementary school or middle school. And by the time they got to high school, these children were often only reading on a second or third grade level. And consequently, you talk about the shame. The most frequent sentence I heard from the students was, I'm stupid. In reality, they were not stupid. 
they just had not been taught correctly. And we talk, I mentioned Henry Winkler and his books. That was the impetus for his writing the books was that he felt stupid. So his book series is Hank, Hank Zipser. And it's all about how things go awry with his life. But this child has dyslexia and he winds up on top of the world. So I will make sure that I put a link to some of those books in the show notes. And I will also refer to your website. You mentioned about not having the multisensory teaching when you were a child. Will you explain to our listeners what that means? What do you mean by a multisensory approach to learning? We have a deficit in one of our senses. Ours is uh, mostly auditory and or visual. You don't. I also do a learning difference screening and I found where 60% of my students through my data is it's both auditory and visual. There's a highly cited research that says it's up to 80% on understood.org. So I'm going to go with the 60% mine being auditory and visual. So then we can add on the tactile kinesthetic uh, movement. Of course, you could also add smell and taste, but anyway, when we add on that movement orientation or kinesthetic tactile, that is the extra senses that we're making up for the, the deficit in the auditory and visual sense. You think about the 80s when the majority of my early learning was, it was a lot at the board and it was the teacher lecturing or speaking out. So my biggest deficit is auditory, for then visual. Some it's visual, then auditory. So at the board speaking, both deficits, right? So kids got to be doing, they got to be moving, they got to be doing, they got to be touching. And you know, I also, like I said, I do this learning difference grading, but I also do a student survey. So I like to listen to the kids and follow the child, you know, that's my Montessori background. You know what they say for me, number one is their best way of learning is through experiencing. Well, the divergent mind, we don't work on the scientific theory like most, that's convergent mind. Our divergent mind works on observations, then we develop our theory in our own hypothesis, and then we go on to conclude our research and backing it up. So that's the opposite of how we're learning, how our brains learn, how we think, and our thinking processes. They have to be able to do. They have to be able to do it through observation, through their own ratio, develop their own hypothesis based off what they see and what they know. And they have to mainly trust themselves because if they're going against the current of everybody else and the scientific convergent minds, they got to have that confidence in what stand for what they believe. And that's where my program is so alternative. It's so holistic, so different that I have to trust this knowledge that I've been getting, this knowing of how to help people with no differences. And so that takes, again, a lot of compassion and a lot of courage. I just want to people where I see people that are successful learners are, are ones that trust themselves. You've got to trust your knowing, your internal thoughts, your internal, what you see, what you hear. You mentioned your Montessori background. That mm -hmm. certainly is in concert with the whole observation learning. I mean, isn't that what Montessori is, this experiences yes. and observing? Yes. So we have 23% of our class population is neurodivergent. You're looking at the three-fourths when you're going for the just the neuroscience, right? Just what you've learned in school and which they taught you to apply in at the school of education. When you are observing the child first and basing and seeing what what we call in Montessori materials and level materials that they choose. You're looking at the psychology, the pedagogy, and the neuroscience all at once. That's where the term neuropedagogy comes from. So I suggest everybody look that up because it really is very Montessori. It's new and it looks at the whole person, not just bits and pieces. See, that's what the neurodivergent mind needs. They need to, to people to understand the whole being of that child the whole, what makes them up. And that's what Montessori said. She was way bef before her time, way. You are a certified um, instructor in Orton-Gillingham. The best part of the Orton-Gillingham training to me is the phonics space. Because if you're missing the sounds auditorily, what you're doing is 
you're constantly confusing, let's say, I for E sound, E for I sound. So the IE confusion, let's say, it only can be helped phonetically through systematic, multisensory, direct instruction. The I and E confusion, think about how many words in that middle position have those, those important vowels that really set how this word is going to be said. And if you think about it, if, if you're not working on eh, eh, and doing it with multisensory ways and showing them in their mouth what they're doing, then they'll, they'll never get that. That phonics is so very important. And again, that it's scaffolded and it works from a singular phoneme up to double to triple to quadruple groups of letters, morphology. So morphemes. I'm very big on Orton-Gillingham. Don't get me wrong. I'm very big on Orton-Gillingham. That the most, another second important part of Orton-Gillingham that I've appreciated is the way that we tap out the letter sounds because we're adding the tactile sense of touching the sounds on our fingers or on the table. So I don't think a child, especially that's having problems auditorily that they don't need, there's not one that doesn't need it. If they're not, your child isn't responding to Orton-Gillingham, it's mostly a visual processing and you might need to sound a developer or behavioral optometrist to do vision therapy or and or look at Erlen syndrome or other visual processing problems. Orton-Gillingham is a majority of those for the, that have dyslexia. One of the things that frustrates me beyond belief is this method of teaching whole word reading. And study after study after study has proven that it is ineffective in teaching children to read. And yet school districts across the world insist on using that. I am not going to get on my soapbox, but I believe that it is big business wanting to sell more products that use their own skewed research to convince administrators they have this best research-based program when Orton-Gillingham has been around and Montessori has been around for a hundred years or more. If we just went back to basics, I think we wouldn't have the behavior problems that we see in high schools and the drug use because kids are shamed and feel frustrated and to hide that shame and to mitigate those feelings of being stupid they often turn to drugs and alcohol to compensate. So it just really makes me sad that as a education system, we're not looking at the whole child. Right. And they'll be the first to shut down. The auditory component is most with those with dyslexia. What happens is if most words are 85% of them are phonetic. So a lot of us have working memory problems. So if if we can only hold three to four images in the mind at one time, that means that work, those sight words, that are the words that we're trying to learn over, let's say five or six letters or more, cannot be memorized. Their strength is in the sight words, the whole word level. But again, if it's over five or more, they're not going to be able to hold that in their mind. So that's a whole set of deficit that we're causing when we're not teaching phonic skills. When again, 85% of all words are phonetic. That's a big problem when we're not teaching phonics. Schools rarely give a diagnosis of dyslexia. The common terminology is a learning disability in reading a learning disability and comprehension, when if you boil it down, most often it is truly dyslexia. Mm -hmm. Why do you think schools don't want to use that word? I think the best help that comes from dyslexia are outside organizations that offer free diagnoses. If it's nothing to do with the school system getting funding for that, when it's been done through individual organizations, why I independently screen. So I send people in the right direction of where they could go outside of the school system. So they're not depending on a school system that won't give them the correct label for, for help, such as Orton Gillingham. So that way we're bypassing that and going direct to the help of it. Luckily, these organizations that are so helpful. Which goes back to my statement. If we just taught every child using Orton Gillingham methods, mm -hmm. we would eliminate so many problems. 
and we would save money. In the long run, we would save money. Also, there is something that I, I saw where teachers would say, oh, she'll grow out of it. Why is that wrong thinking? There's such thing as directional dyslexia and, and also the visual dyslexia, which is called surface dyslexia. So that's just a small component. Most dyslexia is phonetic dyslexia. That's where you see the transposition of words, where words are written in reverse or letters are transposed, one's in front of the other, that doesn't need to be. And then reversals, you know, B, D, P, Q, M, N. What happens is they have abstract thinking and that can be fixed. It's just because it looks like a P, it's not, it's a D. So, so when you're looking at just that component of dyslexia being that there is one that can be fixed, there's so much more that cannot be fixed. Abstract thinking is not going to help for phonological awareness and phonemic awareness. So I think we're just looking again at the <laughs> small aspects of things. And um, when you're looking at that, that's what can cause a big problem for a lot of people. I think the big takeaway is that the longer you wait to remediate the deficits, the harder it becomes. And the first three years, first, second, third grade, we are teaching children how to read. So they're, they're learning to read. By the fourth grade, the paradigm shifts in schools and they're reading to learn. If a child hasn't learned to read, then they're lost. And everything in school builds upon what was learned in the previous grade. So if the child hasn't learned to read by third grade, it, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And as with you, you know that if you have a learning difference, it doesn't go away. It's something that you deal with all of your life. So waiting to see if a child is going to outgrow it is such a negative and wrong approach to education. You can start intervention as soon as you can see problems. Now, you could decide to wait on if they're showing transpositions or reversals and wait till seven, if that's their main characteristic. Now, main characteristic being it's the most seen of all the other characteristics. And you got to look at frequency. How often are they doing these reversals and a number of a 20 word sample, let's say. So if you're looking at the rate and frequency and it's so high, then you could start and get an earlier diagnosis for that specifically. But I think intervention is key. As soon as you can see that there's phonetically not, you go on over A and O, ah, ah, they're still getting them confused. That's an auditory deficit, which again, remember I'm saying most dyslexia is phonetic, phonetic dyslexia. Whether I'm a parent or a grandparent of a child, five, six, seven, what are some things that might be red flags for me that this child might have an issue with reading and phonetics? There's a neurodivergency there if you have sense, any kind of sensory processing issues and or have sensory processing disorder. That would be a big one to say that there's some um, neuro difference there. What is a sensory processing disorder? We can be hypersensitive to our environment through the senses or we can be hypo or we can be varied. For instance, the biggest one is through touch. Like if if they're hypersensitive with touch, that the tags will bother them. The, the bottom of their pant leg cannot be touching their sock or it can't be too high up. Um, mushy foods will bother them. That's a hypersensitivity. Hyposensitivity is more like they need pressure on their body for touch. And at night, they need a heavy blanket to sleep. Hypersensitivity and hyposensitivities that happen with, through the senses, the five senses, touch, taste, smell, hear, see. That, that's a, a good, very good indicator that there is a neuro difference. And second, specific language impairment. Specific language impairment, including speech, will tell you that there could be a neuro deficit there. Now, think about dyslexia. The definition of it is a sound and language processing disorder. Of course, a, a specific language parent will tell you if you have that too. So you want to see if your child has, again, speech, R, S, W, S, H sounds that are uh, not pronounced 
produced correctly. And you'll also want to look for are they cutting off the endings of words like with IES, ING, ED. If they get language confused, night, day, morning, evening, dinner, lunch, and they get pronouns confused, he, she, we, they, specific language impairment would be would be second to this uh, that. And then I'd look to see if they have ADHD. Now there's a hyperactive type, there's the inattentive, and there's the combined, because those highly core a bit with dyslexia. I want to talk about for a second the hyperactivity type, because what we see physically going on is what's mostly everybody indicates or looks for for ADHD. But that's the only thing that bothers other adults and that we can see. But I really want you to think about how it's not only hyperactivity in the physical body, but also in the mind. So when when they're speaking, they may do what we call a lot of fusions. They fuse what they're saying presently with what's coming next that they're going to say. So that's hyperactivity of the mind. When they're, when you're, they're reading or speaking, they jumble up the words at the beginning because the mind is anxious at that point and where calm is needed. They're anxious. And so they're saying what's going to be read next versus what they're reading presently. That's another indicator. I'd say there's three major indicators that I include all in my screening <laughs> because I know that's what we need to look for besides looking at the auditory processing and the visual processing. I have a, a small little model of a brain and it's the kind that if you put in water it will grow and it's very hard if it's not been soaked in water grown after say three or four days it's pretty it's the size of a of the that can fit in the palm of your hand it's about the same size it's very soft and pliable and I would tell the students that when they hydrate their brain things get inside, information gets inside, learning is easier. But when they don't drink enough water, the brain shrivels and hard, and you can't get anything inside it because there's nothing to bend, it doesn't move. And then eating proper food and getting enough rest are all things that set everybody up for enhanced learning. And it's especially important for any student, any person who has a learning difference. Have you found that to be true in your research? Definitely. In Montessori, we allow kids to keep water with themselves daily. And when we see them start to shut down, we know that they're sick, hot, tired, hungry, or stressed. So nothing like going to go away from whatever you're working on for a minute and clearing the mind and getting the water to hydrate yourself that can can't help but help you learn because you got to look at the whole child you got to look at the physical body the emotional the mental the cognitive we're in an environment now that is heavy heavy in toxins and neurotoxicity which can cause uh decreased neuroplasticity and so we got to constantly be detoxifying and a good way is through water and of course urination there isn't a parent out there that they don't know that that there could be buildup in the the microbes and that are unhealthy in the gut that they can help their brain their child's brain i suggest you look up grain brain ah gut brain health and google it because it's going to mention hydration and detoxicity. Healthy food helps our brain grow, you know. The other kinds just add to that toxicity with the chemicals and the additives and and the extra ingredients that you cannot pronounce on those labels that are causing more toxicity to the brain. So a healthy brain is one that eats right, gets exercise, sleeps well. We got to think sick, hungry, tired, stressed, calm for stress. Yes, you're right. I'm so glad you did that, Carolyn. So you're right. We're coming to the end of our interview. And I -hmm. would love to give you the opportunity to tell our listeners, our parents, our grandparents, something that is important for you to tell them, or words of wisdom that you want to share that we haven't addressed yet. What is something that they really need to understand or to know that we haven't already discussed? The support that you give them is the most important. If it wasn't for my mom being my cheerleader, my advocate, my my everything, no, did she? Nor did she. All you know, she's got dyslexia. Her her 
characteristics are different than mine and her frequency and all of that. It looks different than mine. Um, but she so no, she still couldn't understand mine. She still supported me. So that love and that compassion and get knowledge, gain all those things with, I said, Googling, uh, I'd Google epigenetics, I'd Google uh, neuropedagogy, I'd Google uh, gut brain health, neuro, just even the term neurodiversity, which I, I love globally that it's getting out because the people that are speaking out about it now are the ones that have it like myself. So they become an advocate from the self for themselves and that they can speak out and give awareness to others because of the support you've given them. My mom's She'll be listening to this later. She's listened to all the podcasts I've been on. Be there for them. Love them. Give them affirmations every day. And you know what? My mom used to say, I did tell you. I did tell you, Trisha. I told you every day you were smart. But you know what? It's not until they get that empathy, that grace, that they can truly understand and believe in themselves. So say, continue to say it every day. And, and then model that strength that they need, because it's going to take strength, a lot of strength and a lot of courage. I'd like to add that giving children permission to advocate for themselves is incredibly empowering. And to be able to walk up to a teacher and say, I have dyslexia and I need this is powerful. And I always advocate it for my students to truly understand their difference and to not be afraid of asking for what they need. Definitely. I just uh, kind of had a flashback uh, of what happened because that's what happens. We have 3D thinking. I was thinking it wasn't until I was high school that I remember kind of saying something and then in college. And it was it was really, even then, I didn't come out with open arms from whoever I was telling. So continue to get awareness out and understanding of the neurodivergent mind. So that way they can, when you, they can't, when they go to advocate, they can go to somebody who's understanding. They're not speaking to someone about it and they don't have the, the courage to do that yet. Speak about it on YouTube. There's an audience that can't Partly, but speak back, but listen at that point, right? Speak out on what they call the TikTok, you know, things like that. So I think, and then, you know, and learning how wonderfully your mind is and how gifted it is. I guess the message that I want parents and grandparents to understand is that there are, there are children with learning differences and that doesn't make them less of a child, less of a person. We just have to adjust how we teach them and that there are gifts and we have to build on those children's strengths and the world is open to them and have a positive attitude and not make them feel like they're stupid, but really advocate for them. I had a student who was in the gifted program, an incredible musician, an incredibly smart young man but who could not write. And the school wanted to kick him out of the gifted program, even though he scored the highest score on the entrance exam of anyone who ever had applied to the program. We haven't talked about this term. He was what is known as twice exceptional. He had a learning disability, a learning difference, but he was incredibly intelligent. And that is something else that is difficult for parents and teachers even to, to grasp and understand that even highly intelligent children can have dyslexia and have a deficit in reading and writing, which is a different episode altogether. But I, I do want to leave listeners with that thought twice exceptionality, like you said, or 2E, and also look up stealth dyslexia. If it's a type of dyslexia that goes along with that, you want to look up stealth. I was not good academically, obviously. That rolled over to make me think I wasn't good at arts, music, all of those visual graphic arts, all these things that now I've discovered I'm great at because I didn't have the confidence in the academics. So let's stop putting the heavy emphasis on the academics and look more broader beyond those into the arts, because that's where a lot of the dyslexics are with our creativity and our imagination and our outside of the box thinking. 
So I'm so glad you brought that up, Carolyn, because <laughs> now I just, I'm so, I do photography, poetry, scrapbooking, all of these wonderful outlets I have now that I didn't even think I was even good at. You know, that's so sad. I'm so happy you've discovered all of that. And I appreciate your helping me talk about something that I'm so passionate about. And yes. it always makes me sad when I see a child who struggles. And I just think if, you know, if you just have the right support, you're going to, you're going to set the world on fire. You're going to do yes. amazing things. You need the right advocate. And we have these awesome little niches of things that we could do that people can explore and learn more from that them, they themselves as an adult might not know. So just listen to them, follow the child, hear what they have to say, honor what they have to say. It takes you to fun places. That's what I enjoy. We've used big words on this episode. We've talked about a lot of technical information, but I want listeners to know that if you go to the show notes, you'll be able to learn more about it. I also will put links to your website. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Tracy Peterson calls herself a jack of all trades. She's taught in California, Kansas, Nebraska, and Arkansas. Special education, preschool, high school, college, fifth grade, second grade, and first grade. She was named Teacher of the Year for the Little Rock School District in 2005. Cartwheels is her first book, but she has been telling kids' stories for years. She's an enthusiastic motivator who finds the good in all, and her class rules are simple. Be kind, do your best. Tracy hopes Cartwheels will be a springboard for positive conversations about dyslexia, and for everyone finding and recognizing their own special kind of smart in themselves and in others. Welcome, Tracy. Let's begin our conversation with a summary of what Cartwheels is all about. The title of the book is Cartwheels, Finding Your Special Kind of Smart. And it is a, it's a children's book. It's geared toward lower elementary students. And it's about a little girl's journey uh, with dyslexia. And it's told through her eyes. It's told in first person. I wrote it with a first grader. I teach first grade and I wrote it with a first grader in my class. And she, she just kind of narrated her story and I took notes through it. And it, it takes her, it starts in kindergarten where she likes to dance and, and do gymnastics and do cartwheels. And she's good at math, but the reading thing just isn't coming together for her. And it takes her into first grade where kind of the same thing is happening. She likes to do all these things and she's, she's an active, bright little girl, but the reading is not coming together for her. So we follow her through the journey of teachers who would be myself included saying, Sloan, you need to focus, you know this. And just what it feels like at being a student, hearing those words. And then it takes her through her parents having her tested in the testing process and then telling her that she has dyslexia and explaining what dyslexia is, kind of empowering her in a way. And so we walk through the, the whole tutoring process with her. And at the very end of the book, her, her teacher asks advice for next year. And the one thing she says is tell everybody that they can crack the reading code and everybody's their own special kind of smart. And then she does throw in and tell them not to do cartwheels in the classroom. The subtitle is finding your own kind of smart. And I know that is, those are Sloan's words, but help us understand what those words actually mean. I would say I feel so passionate about this. Because teaching first, I've taught first grade now for, for nine years, reading, learning to read is hard. First grade, I would say first grade is kind of the learn to read year. Certainly kids get all lead up skills in, in kindergarten and continue to learn to read in second grade, but it's a big focus. And reading is difficult. If everything's going fine and instruction is good and reading is difficult. Now with dyslexia, it is even more difficult and these guys get defeated very easily. I think it's so important that we encourage kids in every part of their life to find their own special kind of smart. And we encourage that obviously reading is important, but that we build up all these other things in their life too and, and build that confidence because the reading will come, but we want to just keep that confidence up for these, for these little guys. 
in the book, Sloan says that she's good at math, that the, the numbers go right into her brain. Yeah. And she's a great artist and she's good at gymnastics and doing cartwheels. And that's her special kind of strength. And there are lots of famous people who have dyslexia that I would think the general public has no clue because they're so successful. Steven Spielberg, Spielberg Tim yeah. Tebow, the mm-hmm. football player. Henry right. Winkler, Jennifer Aniston, Tom Cruise, Jay Leno, yeah. and even people like John Lennon and Steve Jobs and Muhammad Ali, they all had dyslexia and look at the wonderful legacy they left our world. And even there's suspicion that some historical figures also had dyslexia, Albert Einstein, Pablo Picasso, George Washington, and Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, that's incredible when, when you think of the gifts that they had. That's one of the misconceptions is that people think that if you have dyslexia, you're not intelligent and nothing could be further from the truth. You're so, you're so right. And, you know, the, the um, statistics will say that 15 to 20% of the population have some level of dyslexia. And so that's, that's kind of a staggering number when you think about it that way. The other big, big thing to recognize is people with dyslexia are generally very, very bright, but just neurologically, they don't learn to read in the same way that other people do. And that doesn't mean there's any lack of intelligence there. And that's, that's sometimes a red flag to a teacher. If a child is very precocious, very strong verbally, very strong in math, but things just aren't coming together. I, I mean, there are other educational red flags, but that's a huge, huge red flag because we know there's the aptitude there. They just often need to be taught in a different way. The other thing with kids, and I've seen this over and over and over again in the classroom, is the way they problem solve is often just phenomenal. Their perseverance with a task, their problem solving skills are often just above everyone else's. So it's it's interesting to observe those strengths in kids that might struggle in, in other areas. And there yes. is no cure for dyslexia. But people who have reading struggles can learn strategies to develop the necessary skills and and become successful readers. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and Sloan, the, um, the first grader in cartwheels, has actually is now, she started intervention early in first grade. And she is now in third grade and reading beyond her reading level. Now, there's certainly ranges of dyslexia. And that is not always the case that someone progresses that quickly and and has that much success. But she has done very well because of the strategic direct instruction that she got through to tutor. It was so, so important. Tell us what type of intervention Sloan received. She received one-on-one tutoring and it's it's based on an Orton-Gillingham approach. Now, Orton-Gillingham isn't so much it's more of an approach and not a method or a program, but it's, it's a multi-sensory, just a direct explicit phonics technique where kids go back to the pretty much the very beginning. They learn the rules, they learn the letters, just, just very strategically. We'll tell parents it's often like building a scaffolding. And if you try to climb something that isn't solid from the bottom, you're not going to get to the top safely. And so it's, it's going back and building that scaffolding. As we instruct reading in the classroom, most kids learn from that whole group instruction. We use, say, an Orton-Gillingham approach with our curriculum, but most kids can, can learn that whole group. Well, kids with dyslexia often need just more specific instruction. And the other thing that I had mentioned was the early intervention. To Sloan's parents' credit, we had a meeting in September where I suspected we needed to do some additional testing and that, that there were struggles, they were on it the next day. Uh, you know, I've also dealt with parents who, who don't want to hear that their child is having a problem. And, and, and that is, it is, as a parent, it's heartbreaking. The sooner that you can find out information about your child's learning, the sooner you can do that, the better you can help a child. I always say knowledge is power as far as, as, far as a, a testing goes or, or seeing if your child has any learning differences. I want to step back a minute to Orton-Gillingham. This is not a new approach. Samuel Orton was a neuropsychiatrist, 
And Anna Gillingham was an educator and a psychologist. Mm -hmm. In the 1930s, the two of them joined forces and developed this program, this approach. And it was the first remedial reading program that used multisensory phonics strategies for reading instruction. And this is almost a hundred years old and it's proven for children who have dyslexia, but it also is a proven method for all children, even typically developing readers. So it's not some woo-woo kind of teaching strategy. This is a proven method of teaching reading. We're lucky enough in our school as regular education teachers to um, also have Orton-Gillingham training, not to the level to make us a a therapist or an interventionist, but to give us a a general idea of some strategies that we can integrate into our curriculum that would strengthen the, the, um, the curriculum that we're teaching in the classroom. Yeah, it's fabulous. Reading and dyslexia is a passion for me. And I have worked as an advocate for children who have reading difficulties and learning differences. And, you know, you mentioned about first grade being a read to learn grade, actually from first, second, and third students are learning to read. And by the fourth grade, if they haven't already mastered reading, they just get further and further and further behind early identification and early intervention is absolutely imperative for academic success. Yes, absolutely. You said you noticed in September some red flags. Can you tell us what they were? Well, and there are a lot, I think people typically think letter reversals, which often is just a developmental thing in first grade too. But some of the things that I, I mean, that I noticed with Sloan is she was very precocious. She was very verbal. She was very strong in math. The written language, the reading was not progressing with her peers. And so that was something that was a huge red flag. Another thing, and this was just knowing the family, but her older brother, who's just a year older than than she, was a very advanced reader. With Sloan being presenting and being so bright, but just those words, the letters, the sounds not being able to go go together at the right at the rate that we'd expect was just the biggest red flag for me. If I could give any advice, it would be to definitely trust your teacher if if they do bring something up of concern, because teachers are trained to to know what the red flags would be. I wish every kindergarten, first, second, and third grade teacher were trained in Orton-Gillingham and certified Orton-Gillingham instructors. I think we would turn our education system upside down if Mm -hmm. school districts invested in the training to teach those primary grade teachers. It's yeah. And what you said about kids pretty much knowing how to read, you know, at at fourth grade, now certainly they advance, but there's so much data that says if, if you're not at level by third or fourth grade, that it's, yeah, it is virtually impossible to catch up. So those early years are so, so, so important. You know, the, the preschool, the pre-K and kindergarten years are important to build to first grade, but certainly Yeah, those years, those years are so important. It may be that a grandparent or parent suspects there might be an issue prior to a teacher bringing it up. What should that parent or grandparent do? I would say bring it up to the teacher, have a team discussion about concerns. It's it's difficult because to really define it and diagnose dyslexia, testing is expensive. There's no doubt. Being able to team with a teacher or school is so is so very important. From a grandparent standpoint, I think supporting if the school hasn't said anything, but but supporting the parents and supporting what the school might say also. I think to follow your gut is really important because often um, it won't lead you astray. Even in the book, Sloan herself realized that there was an issue. Yeah, kids do. That's really what we want to address with cartwheels is we want to empower kids. We want them to feel like they're not alone. There was an article written years ago by a professor. Her name was Rudine Sims Bishop in the early 60s, and she was addressing diversity in children's literature. Now it was more ethnic diversity. But when I heard of her article, 
it just rang so true to me because what she said is children's books need to provide a mirror, a window, and a sliding glass door for children who, who have differences. So a mirror being something where they could see themselves, a window where others could look in and understand, and then the sliding glass door where they could also step into someone else's world. Now, again, that was representing ethnic diversity, but very rarely do children with dyslexia see themselves in literature. I've had so many people come up to me or children or parents and say, I've had children say, that reminds me of me or parents who said, you know, my child said, that's me. That's just like me. And so, so it's just providing that, that opportunity for kids to see themselves and, and not feel, and not feel like they're so alone. I can give the perspective of a high school teacher working with high school students who did not get that intervention in the first, second, and third grade. Mm -hmm. And by the time they get to high school, these kids are so beaten up and feel so insecure and have no confidence. And those are the kids who are really, really struggling when it was so unnecessary because we as a society know how to teach reading. We just yeah. fail these kids. Well, abs- absolutely. And, and that's where kids turn to other things as a defense mechanism. And on the other side of that, what we can teach though on the other side is empathy from, from people who, who don't have learning struggles. They need to realize dyslexia is real and it's, it's just a different way to learn. And like you said before, kids aren't dumb or stupid. They just learn. They're probably smarter, but they just learn in a different way and empowering children and giving them information when they're young about their peers who may be struggling is powerful also because it provides that empathy, that information can feed that empathy of other kids. And that's real important. I really like your series of books. Can you tell us what you're working on next? I can. I, um, have finished cartwheels and I'm on to a book called ball caps, beanies and being bald. What I do is I'm just telling stories. I'm telling stories of brave children. And I, I was blessed to have a, a student in my class last year who has alopecia. All of his hair fell out at one point in kindergarten, came back in and then in first grade. So we're writing, I just met with him the other day and we're writing his story of alopecia now, alopecia isn't probably as prevalent as, as dyslexia, but it certainly is always with him. It's something that, you know, not having any hair when you're seven years old is something that people look at. He bravely tells his story and um, kind of shines a light on what alopecia is. I'm excited to read that. You'll have to let me know when it's available. And I also have actually is- I have another one kind of a rough, a rough copy of a little gal that I know who has type one diabetes. Now that is that there's more knowledge of type one diabetes. It's something that's difficult to deal with as a child. And so again, it's, it's just a brave child telling their story through their eyes. So, so blessed to be able to spend my days. I say with my seven-year-old BFFs, but to be in a room with, with a whole bunch of seven-year-olds truly is a blessing most days, maybe not every day, most days, because they're just incredible and they're, they're honest and they're, they're kind and they're true. And, and to be able to tell these stories is just, I'm just real fortunate to be able to do it. Well, it sounds exciting. And I'm so glad that you have them and, and they have you. And the fact that you realize the world needs to hear these stories is a blessing for all of us. Where can our listeners find you on the internet and how can they find your books? I have a website. It is teachertracypeterson.com. And there is a way to order through the website. My publisher is a local publisher here in Arkansas. It's called Etalia, E-T-L-E. A-L-I-A at aliapress.com. But Cartwheels is also available on Amazon and on Barnes and Noble website. It's, It's a click away. I will have all of the contact information in the show notes. Great. And there is one thing that I would like to leave listeners with. And that is if you are a parent or have custody of your grandchild, and you think your child has a learning difference, it is so important, especially in public schools, 
to put in writing to that child's school that you have a child study team meeting and that will get the process started of identifying and testing if the child indeed needs extra help. Because like you said, that early identification, that early intervention is what has made Sloan the successful reader that she is. And I cannot stress that enough how important that is. Absolutely. I I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And if I could add on to that, on the other side of that, if your teacher has concerns, I would listen and research and find out why, because the, the more that you can be a team, the better. And then on the other hand, just to points to remember, if you have a child that is a successful learner, teaching them to embrace others and to accept others and have empathy for others with learning differences is so important also. It's a good message. Is there anything you want our listeners to know that we haven't addressed? The most important thing is to read to your child. So many parents, when kids are learning to read, say, well, I have to make them read to me. So much of reading is, is, is understanding. Reading to your child is so very important also. It's so very important. And just to share that love of reading with a child just will unlock so many doors. And I think that's important to note. I even enjoyed reading to my students on the high school level, and they loved it. They loved listening to me read to them. Kids who are struggling with reading, they like things that are above their reading level. And so you can provide that, gets them out into a different world of reading and comprehension. uh, Comprehension is a part of reading also. Something I forgot to mention was audiobooks. Listening to audiobooks is a great way for people who have dyslexia to read, and it is a form of reading. And the children, like you just said, they can get those more complex uh, plots and and story structures by listening as opposed to trying to read it because they don't read fluently. They have difficulty comprehending. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode of the Adventures with Grammy podcast. You will find the links to our guests and the topics we discussed in this episode's show notes. If you would like to be a guest, or if you know someone who would be an awesome guest, please connect with me at carolyn at adventureswithgrammy.com.